Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Today's passage is actually part of what we're encouraging you uh, to memorize. So 1 Peter chapter one, uh, today we're starting in verse six, but we would love to see you memorize verse three to verse nine. It's a, just a great text of scripture, great to commit to memory. And so we're encouraging you do that in your families, with your kids. Uh, that, that's a lot for some of, your, for some of the little ones. Uh, give them smaller chunks, but in your, in your missional communities, in, encourage one another to commit this uh, to memory. And so I, w- I would encourage you to do that. So today we're gonna start in uh, verse six of chapter one. So let's stand together uh, as we honor the reading of God's word. And we're beginning in chapter one, verse six. Our brother Peter says this. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in your word. We praise you that it sustains us. We praise you that your promises to us are unchanging and that you are constant. And so Father, we ask that this morning that as we as we consider suffering, as we look to uh, the, this, this passage um, and what it entails, would you help us uh, to cling to our living hope? And would you make true these realities for us in Christ? Would, would we believe, help our unbelief? We love you. That's in Christ's name, amen. You can grab a seat. <clears throat> well, as children, <clears throat> uh, especially growing up in America, I think this is true everywhere, but especially here, we have a plan usually. Usually, we hope there's a plan. Uh, you grow up, get as few spankings and timeouts as possible, uh, get your teeth straightened if and when necessary, uh, take some music lessons or join a sports team, maybe play a few video games, uh, get your driver's license eventually. Uh, make good grades, build a good resume, have some fun along the way. Uh, and then they get a car, right? Uh, and then maybe graduate, go to college, maybe even with a scholarship. Maybe you even enroll at A&M and you say, whoop. Yeah, see, there's some here that did it. Um, at some point, hopefully you move out of your parents' house. I don't know when Aggies do that, but it's, I know hopefully that's the goal for everyone. Whoop, there he goes. Uh, get a degree, uh, meet that special someone, maybe go on a mission trip along the way, pursue a career, and then you know the rest, right? You get married, 
buy a dog or a cat if you're one of those kind of people. Uh, you get a good job, find a good church, become part of a good small group, serve, tithe, have 2.3 children, three or four bedrooms. Uh, you build your bank account, make enough to support uh, the church building fund while still having fun on the weekends and still have enough left over to go on vacations. And then hopefully your kids rinse and repeat. And for some of you, for some of us, this sounds glorious. And to be clear, I'm not knocking uh, any of these things, except there's lots to be talked about, about cats, um, but that's not for today. Uh, but this life, uh, this view of life is very much at odds with what I think Peter is telling the church as he tells them, this is not your home. That like the Jews who were taken and torn from their homeland away from the comforts of their own culture, they had lived a life of pain and hardship, a life that left them longing for home. And Peter is preparing us, warning us that if, if this American life is all you're planning for, then you're selling yourself way short. That there is an eternal inheritance that we talked about last week waiting for you. But as you wait, as you long for that eternal inheritance and the life to come, this life, this life as an exile will still be difficult. And for all our planning, no one, I, I, I don't think anyone ever plans for suffering. And so we need to listen to Peter. Peter's gonna show us four things, I believe, about suffering. Number one, suffering is coming. Number two, suffering is accomplishing something in us. Number three, suffering makes worship sweet. And number four, suffering is the way to glory. So I'll start with number one, suffering is coming. In verse six, he says, you rejoice in this. So just right there, what's this? In what? Uh, last week's passage, oh, it was ecstasy, right? I mean, it was worship. The incredible inheritance that is ours by faith, the salvation that is coming. Now that you've seen this sure hope, this living hope, the inheritance, the promises kept in heaven for you, you rejoice in this, in that. Because for a little while, there will be pain. As exiles, there will be suffering. So what, what a contrast, right? We are rejoicing and are also suffering grief, joy and grief. If you've journeyed long as a Christian, you know this combination. In our greatest joys, there are still griefs. And in our greatest griefs, there is still rejoicing. We, we are not robots. We are, we, are, we are not ones without feelings. Life is complex. We are emotional beings. And yet in the heaviness of our grief, there's still much to rejoice in. So what is the ground? What is the source of our joy? It's everything we talked about last week. Something great has happened to us. We've been born again. Something great is coming for us. And you rejoice in this, Peter says. Uh, but it's not easy. He goes on in, in verse six. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So even now for a short time. Short is a relative word, right? Uh, some might say, I'm short. Uh, even though I'm basically six foot, uh, if you round up. Uh, 
but I, I'm way taller than Hallie, my six-year-old. So it's relative, right? Uh, time is the same way. Uh, have you ever ex- tried to take a two-year-old and explain next year to them? It's just, I mean, you might as well be talking about a space invasion. Uh, there is the, the, the sense of how anything that far away could be something that's ever gonna happen uh, is foreign to them. And yet talk to a parent in the room and they'll tell you that a decade passes in a blink and that suddenly toddlers are teenagers and they'll tell you how just yesterday their abs were a little flatter, their knees were a little springier, but, but few things tend to slow down time like pain. I've walked through some seasons of pain and trial. Even now, many of you are walking through the midst of suffering through trials. And I love how Peter describes it. He, he says various trials. Our trials are all over the map, right? Just when everything seems great in one area of life, some other unseen thing comes along. My trials are not yours. They are varied. But when you're in it, it never feels like a short time, does it? If time flies when you're having fun, time, time crawls when we suffer. But praise God, our suffering is short. And he even says, if necessary. If necessary, I believe, means not every moment of this life is pain. Praise God, there is reprieve. There are beautiful moments of, of grace on the earth, but suffering will come. Trials have come. Tragedy will strike. The painless life is a mirage. It's not real. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But we don't simply rejoice because of the inevitability of suffering. No, number, number two, suffering is accomplishing something in us. Check out the first two words of verse seven. So at the end of six, he says, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that. So there's, there's a so that in your suffering. Someone, maybe all of us, need to hear that today, that your trials, your suffering, your pain, your grief right now, there is a so that. There's something coming from it. Your tears are not in vain. You are not the victim of happenstance. As you look to the source of joy, not a single tear is wasted. When you weep with your spouse over the pain of, of losing a parent, over a financial burden, over lost friendships, over broken dreams, over your son or daughter who's struggling, God's with you. There is a so that. When you sit alone, crushed by loneliness, by the emptiness of of an empty nest, by failing marriage, by the weight of the pain you still carry from a previous betrayal or from someone who sinned against you when you were younger, there's not a single tear, not a single sting of pain that is in vain. And it isn't glossing over suffering to say this. It simply means that the Lord is doing something. Peter gives two things, I think, that, that suffering are do, is doing to, to our faith here. Number one, suffering tests or proves real faith. Verse seven, he says, so that, as, so that the proven character of your faith, the proven character of your faith, 
a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw the power of wind, right? As, as, we, as we braced for a hurricane that looked like it could be coming to us, uh, and then it veered off and, and just destroyed Lake Charles, right? We saw the destructive power of, of wind. But what, what role does wind play in nature, in the life of, of a tree? When you plant a tree in your yard, what do you put out with it? You put a couple posts on the ground, right? You put some stakes on the ground, something to keep that thing uh, in place, to, to brace it so that it doesn't have to bear the brunt of, of, of wind and it doesn't get snapped in half because it's too, it's too young, it's too brittle. It's not established. The roots aren't in the ground. The pressure of wind though is needed. So what do you do after a while? You take the stakes out. After the, not just so the tree can grow higher, but because the tree needs to begin to take the wind on its own. The pressure of the wind actually strengthens the tree. It proves the fidelity of the root system. In the same way, suffering establishes the roots of our faith. It strengthens us, revealing a sure foundation so that we might not be destroyed. So should trials cause us to question God? Should they surprise us? Should we despise suffering? No, because they're working for us. By God's design, they're bringing about something in us that couldn't happen any other way. Difficulty actually keeps us trusting God. In fact, I, I would argue that, that relative comfort and prosperity is often where our faith wanes. Why? Because in those seasons, there's little need for deeper roots, deeper trust. For faith to endure to the end, it must be real. It must be proven. And it's proven through suffering. Suffering comes so that our faith might be proven. So suffering proves faith, but secondly, suffering refines faith. Verse seven, again, the, the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire. So we've talked about wind, but, but we also see another destructive force in our world. In fact, we're seeing it right now, right? As, as much of our country is, is seeing the smoke of massive fires that are happening everywhere. If you've seen the pictures, it's amazing. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's heartbreaking. And fire is wreaking havoc, causing destruction of property, destruction of forests. Um, but used rightly, fire is the tool, right? Uh, Peter says suffering is a fire that we need. And like a master refiner, the Lord uses the fire of suffering and affliction. Suffering is the fire that purifies, that burns away our self-reliance, our self-confidence. And we're, we're driven by suffering to say, to whom else would we go? Only in suffering is our trust made sure all our other hopes are dashed and burned up. God loves us this much to place us in such a furnace. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the, the Lord is, is with us. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the refiner is never very far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. And I love that, that Peter calls our faith more valuable than gold. Few things outlast gold, but yet Peter is calling gold perishable. But faith is of eternal consequence. And like gold, fire refines it, makes it pure, makes it beautiful and useful. 
And when the fiery trial comes, the dross, the impurity is removed. Trials, suffering, this, these are not meaningless. Don't believe that for a second. You may never see why, you may never understand, but strangely, we embrace them because we trust the refiner. This, another great Spurgeon quote, he said this, he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I love that quote. And so does this mean that all my suffering is good? If the Lord is using it, is it all good? Should, should all of my suffering be celebrated? By no means. Pain and tragedy are never to be celebrated as good or as virtuous. Death is not our friend. I understand the sense in which we say that at times because death is the means by which we will go to be with the Lord. Those who know him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in this sense, it, it, it serves that purpose. But death is not our friend. Our God is the God of life. And death is part of the fallen world. It is our enemy. And there are other horrific things that people in our church family have gone through. Abuse, broken homes, broken marriages, through death of children, our dear friends, uh, through miscarriages. Some of you have dealt with addiction or depression, mistreatment by authorities, are we to celebrate these things? No, our, our rejoicing, our celebrating is that no matter the wickedness, no matter the pain that we encounter in the world, our eternal inheritance is secure. Faith that is forged by the refining work of God is able to say, death, sorrow, suffering, where is your sting? We can say this because the great refiner is at work, even in our sufferings. The Lord uses trials, uses griefs to burn away what wasn't real, what wasn't truly of faith. So this is why when we suffer, we must ask, God, what would you have me see in this? How would you increase my trust in you? What more can I see of you? And then what, is, what does refined faith look like when it comes out of the fire? Like he goes on in verse seven. So that the proven character of your, faith, of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The faith that has been tested and refined in the fires of suffering comes out glorious. You think pure brandished gold is beautiful? Out of the fire? Wait till you see faith. God is doing something glorious, something praiseworthy. Have you ever watched someone suffer through something horrific and, and still see them praise the Lord? Like, like Job who said, in losing everything, he said, the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. When I see someone in our body suffer greatly and then, and then raise their hands to worship, lift their voices to sing praise to God, what happens? Christ is magnified. He is better. There is praise, there's honor, there's glory. So imagine that, but times 
thousands upon thousands. At the revelation of Jesus, at his revealing, when he returns, all of the suffering of his saints, those who have faithfully endured, will result in an explosion of praise, a symphony of exaltation. When saints will experience an an eternal glory with Christ and that will outweigh every drop of suffering on this earth. And so this doesn't minimize our suffering. God remembers, he knows. Psalm say, says that he, he, he keeps our tears in a bottle. It's not incidental to him. But our but tested and refined faith when Jesus comes is glorious. And until then, the creation waits and groans, as Paul says. So does that mean our whole life is suffering? Not, not every step, not every season, but there is a certain futility that Paul describes. There is an abundant life now. There is a joy now, but we are not home yet. We're still exiles. Every joy fades here. Every victory apart from Christ here is forgotten. Every, every great savory bite, moments later, I gotta take another one. It's gone, I can't remember it. The, the meal that I had yesterday, I, it, it's not with me anymore. I mean, it's with me in other ways, but it's not with me in that I don't, it's not the goodness of it's not there anymore. Even, even the good won't last. Uh, and, and I love, we, we, sang, we sang it this way this morning. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Paul describes it as birth pains. There's, there's something wonderful on the other side of birth pains, but there's, there's pain to get there. It can't be bypassed. And there's no epidural for life. Uh, it, it is, the glory is coming. That's what makes Peter's next statement all the more astounding. We're being refined by suffering, but still even now, verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an expressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Number three, suffering makes worship sweet. I love that Peter is writing this to Christians who never met Jesus. They live in a different region. Many of them probably heard of the miracles of Jesus through word of mouth. Maybe they had a family member who was on the countryside for the Sermon on the Mount or in Jerusalem as Jesus rode in on a donkey. Or maybe they heard from a friend or from an apostle who was on the hillside after his resurrection to see Jesus ascend into heaven. But these people never heard it themselves and never saw it themselves. Unlike even Thomas, uh, whose doubting was met with physical evidence, they never placed their hands in the hands on the side of their savior. And despite all that, they love him. Even now, even in difficulty, they still don't see him, but they believe in him. They believe in the glory that's coming, the salvation that awaits them, and they rejoice. You, you can hear the, the respect that Peter has for them. Peter, Peter had seen all of it, right? Jesus was in Peter's house. 
he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter walked on the water to see Jesus, right? And then he sank and who pulled him out of the water? Jesus reached out with his hand and pulled Peter back on top of the surface of the water. Even after his denials, three days later, Peter sat with the resurrected Christ, the one with nail scars in his hands, and they ate breakfast together. Peter loved Jesus, but his faith had been sight. He had seen Jesus. He was filled with the Spirit, and he preached of what he had seen. And here are these Gentile believers who had never seen Jesus, and yet with the same Spirit, with the same faith, they love Jesus just like Peter. These believers are, are like the Old Testament exiles that many were born in Babylon, in captivity, always hearing the stories of God's provision, his kindness, and their home back in Jerusalem. By faith, believing the miracle of the Exodus that they had never seen, believing the stories of the manna and the wilderness that they had never experienced, believing and, and, and hearing of the tales of the promised land, and yet they never saw any of those things. And these Christians Peter is, is writing to, they're, they're like you, they're like me. Th this is the already not yet of our faith. Yes, we know Jesus. Yes, he has saved us. Yes, yes, he's with us even now. And we hope in him. But there's a salvation coming when our faith will be made sight. And as we love Jesus, as we, as we love him now, the joy we have in him during this exiled life, it's sweet. It's unexplainable. As Peter says, it's inexpressible, the joy that we have as those who are living by faith. So we wait for that day. We haven't seen Jesus, but we will. And that sort of faith brings about sweet worship. This is my, my wife Amy's favorite passage in the Bible. I remember her reciting it to me and saying it when, when we were dating. And, and if there's an attribute that, that I think really describes her, if you know her, she's is joy, an expressible joy. Uh, and 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 I think the same when I see like anybody in our church who, whose faces light up when they speak of Jesus. Uh, when, they, when they sing about him, you can see it in them. It's like they're seeing their savior by faith. They're anticipating the day of salvation, the day they will be with him. And even though they don't see him now, they love him. The life of faith is not a stoic one. It is a life of love. And Peter's writing to people like us and he's saying, you haven't seen him, but as you suffer, you will know him more and you will love him more. And then number four, suffering is the way to glory. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So this may sound kind of like a change of direction, this part of the passage, uh, but stay with me for just a second. This is often used as a text which, to teach us about the doctrine of scripture, uh, how God's word was formed, the inspiration of the text. A divine act uh, using human authors 
And it's certainly appropriate uh, to take a minute and, to, and just to see what this tells us about the scriptures. Uh, namely that God did, did use human authors. Paul in, in, second, in second Timothy describes the act uh, of these human authors writing as he describes it as them being inspired by God. He says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. That's second Timothy three, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Not inspired in the same way that the latest episode of The Biggest Loser inspires you to go to the gym, right? That's a different kind of inspires. But in the same way that oxygen inspires my lungs. This word inspire, it contains within it the Greek word neo, which literally means to blow air or to breathe out. It's similar to the word for spirit, which in spirit is described as wind, as breath. So when God inspired the scriptures, this, this is powerful. It is a breathing out of God through the human authors. Still the personality of the author, still their style, still written in their time and in their context, but ordained by God, led by him. Literally, God breathed and he revealed himself to us through them perfectly without error. So these, these human authors by God's spirit, right? They, they searched out. They investigated, it says, what would happen to the Messiah and with him. Through these authors, through the prophets, the Holy Spirit, he was, he was literally calling his shots about Jesus. And what did the Holy Spirit of God lead them to find? What was the Spirit testifying about in advance of Jesus? It says it in verse 11. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance, what did he testify to? To the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, this passage is not primarily about how the, how the Bible was written. This, this text is about how God works. His pattern and his plan from the foundation of time. He is the master architect and how did he tell us that things would work? What, what did he say over and over again through the prophets about the Messiah? That yes, he would come, but also that he would suffer. That Christ would be one stricken, smitten, and afflicted. That he would be oppressed, humiliated. And after his suffering, what then? Then he would be glorified. He would receive the many as his portion the mighty as his spoil, Isaiah 53. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what Peter preached in Acts and he was quoting the Psalms. And then we see it in Philippians 2 that he was given the name that is above every name, that it, his name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Jesus suffered and then glory. So, so why is Peter telling us this now? Why, why do we need to know all this about the prophets and about what Jesus did? Peter says it in verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving, the prophets were serving not themselves, but you. You want even more comfort, comfort in your suffering? This sequence of suffering and glory, it's not something new. Peter is saying, this is how it's always worked. Suffering first and then glory. You may suffer for a little while, but that's how God made it. You aren't unique. You aren't alone. No, in fact, you're a lot like your savior. 
He suffered for a little while for you. And his suffering was immense. And even in the midst of suffering, he rejoiced. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And then after his suffering, there was new life, a resurrected body, an eternal reward, an inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. That sort of glory came to Jesus. Jesus knew his suffering was coming. Why? Because, because he is the God man, uh, but, but also because the Old Testament had predicted it. Remember when, when Peter objected to this, right? Jesus tried to tell him and he tried to teach the, the disciples about his coming death as the scriptures had prophesied. And what did Peter say? Never, Lord. You, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. And Peter didn't understand suffering must come and then glory. And he still doesn't remember it later when they're in the garden the night before Jesus' death and, and Judas arrives and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. And as the soldiers go to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He draws out a sword, which is cool just because he had a sword. Um, I, that's not something we study a lot is the sword carrying of the apostles. We should probably do it. Um, but he, he pulls the sword out and he's ready. He's, he, he still doesn't see it. Everyone who was following Jesus Missed it. They missed it, right? Even, and it's not just the prophecies of the Messiah. The prophets, the prophets are always pronouncing judgment on sin and the suffering that would come as a result. But then they would never stop there. The voices and the vision of the future that the prophets give us is one of suffering and then glory. After destruction, there was promised renewal. After death, we see through the prophets that God gives life to dry bones. With hearts of stone, they're, they're replaced and, and, and given hearts of flesh. After the nation is scattered, they would be reestablished, restored. And after the suffering of this earth, there'll be a new heaven, a new earth. And even in Revelation 5, which is the song that is being sung in heaven of our Savior, our Messiah King, what do they say? They say, you are worthy to take the scroll because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then they say, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The suffering, slaughtered, slain, lamb of God, now receiving glory. So this is the pattern for all of scripture. And guess what? It's also the promise for you. Second Corinthians 4 says, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Afflictions precede 
glory. This order is not and cannot be subverted. Christians will endure suffering, but suffering is at work and ultimately it leads to glory. So when, when you suffer and you're tempted to believe that Jesus has betrayed you, that he's forgotten you, look to the suffering servant, the lamb who was slain. Remember, he is with you. He suffered for you. And now you're sharing with him in suffering. And when your friends look at you, like Job's friends did, and they tell you that your suffering is for a hundred different reasons. And when the enemy accuses and convinces you that your suffering is because you aren't a child of God or because you weren't faithful enough to him, know that the object of your faith, the one you're trusting in, he suffered too. And so now having defeated his ultimate enemy, he is now your king of glory and he will carry you to glory through suffering. I love how Peter ends here. He says, in verse, in verse 12, he says, these things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The prophets never got to see this. Uh, they proclaimed that something great was coming. They served as a giant arrow pointing forward and they, they were preaching the good news. And e even those since have preached the gospel of Jesus, even now preaching about Jesus and those who preach are fulfilling the ministry started by God himself, proclaimed by the prophets and now preached to you. And we, we get to see this picture more fully than just about anyone in the Bible. And Jesus said it something like this and in, in, he said something similar to this in Luke 10. Uh, he said, blessed are the eyes that see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. And Jesus came and suffered so that our suffering might end. Prophets and kings, they longed for that. Even angels want to catch a glimpse of the salvation that is coming our way. So, so Christian, what, what's afflicting you today? What's the thing that when all gets quiet that you just can't shake? Is it a broken relationship, a lost dream? Maybe a hope that has been dashed upon the rocks of life. Maybe there's a physical affliction that you just can't escape. Maybe you're walking through cancer right now. Maybe you're walking with someone through a horrific disease. Maybe you're, maybe you're experiencing chronic pain. Maybe you've lost reputation or opportunity in your career because you chose to follow Jesus. Or maybe it's just simply the pain of living as an exile in a world that, where nothing works quite like it's supposed to, where revival seems slow, where the good news of the gospel can't crack the dry, the dry ground of your spouse's heart or of a loved one, a family member's heart, or his kingdom seemingly, this, the kingdom that we've prayed for doesn't seem to come on earth as it is in heaven. Where are you prone to despair? Have you lost heart? Christian, there is an eternal way of glory coming for you. And our hope is not that the light and momentary affliction will be lighter, will be shorter. Our hope is that, the God, that Jesus is alive. And that there is no way 
but by following him. There's no other way, but by walking the path of our savior with him. And there is a day when even your darkest disappointment, the wound that you feel like you'll carry forever, the pain that you feel like just won't ever go away, it will be so far behind you that you will have to squint to even remember it in light of the glory that is coming to you. But until then, until your faith is sight, he will not leave you or forsake you. And though we have not seen him, we rejoice in him. And then inexpressible joy will come forth from our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you that for us there is joy in our suffering, that there is hope for us in eternity, and that even now there is great rejoicing that can happen because of the faith that you have granted us, that we might believe and know and trust in your goodness, your kind hand, guiding us through this light and momentary affliction. Would you be so kind to us? Where we do not believe, would you help us? Where we despair in our suffering, would you draw us back to your kindness, your goodness, your sovereign hand? And would we believe in what you are doing and what is to come? So we praise you and we ask all of this by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen.